0: News, Rational Radio, coming to you from our virtual studio, David Shapiro. I love the backdrop. (laughs) Did you paint that? (laughs) No. No. it's pretty flowers. I mean, it's, you know, it it makes us realize that uh, you're not just a pretty face. In fact, there's other pretty stuff in your life as well.
1: Yeah, I've been an art collector for, I don't know, 40, more, 40, 50 years. But, uh, Alec, the problem is that you find that with the rand at these kind of levels, those pictures that I used to buy 20, 30 years ago are unaffordable today. Uh, it's not that the rand has gone down and that's why it's become a lot more uh, unaffordable. But, um, anyway, I've always enjoyed art.
0: Well, talking about the rand, Dave. uh, We've got a lot on the show today. We're going to be talking with uh, Mark decock and Charles Savage in just a moment about uh, the disaster of Pumalilla, and you can give us your thoughts on that in just a moment as well. But as far as the rand is concerned, we were bumping around quite comfortably at 14 to the dollar before uh, the COVID-19 crisis hit, and we've now gone blown out to 18 against the U.S. dollar, 19, maybe 20s in sight, which has caused many South Africans to want to just get their money out uh, no matter what. What's your, What are you telling them when they come with these stories?
1: It, it's a very difficult conundrum because um, the RAND will only improve once global markets start to improve, and you see that all the time. Every time we get a rush, In uh, equities, equity prices offshore, as we saw on Friday, where um, U.S. markets were a lot stronger, European markets were stronger, and our markets were stronger, the RAND improved. It went from the 1880s down to the 1820s. We see this morning a little bit of uh, weakness in global markets. And the opposite starts to happen. The dollar starts to improve as uh, safe haven, uh, as, it, as its safe haven status takes over, and and you start to see the 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 rand start to weaken as overseas markets. So you've got to decide what you're going to do. If you're going to take your money offshore, make sure you invest it. You know, don't leave it lingering there. Otherwise, you're going to be caught in the wrong spot. In other words, I'm saying, if your intention is to invest overseas then uh, take your money out, but invest, because that's what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's a balancing act, and it's very difficult to read. Um, but the rand,
2: look, if
1: we get out of this, and I know we're going to get if, out of it, I don't know when, If when that does what's happen. What's an if, David?
0: I mean, <laughs> come on. No, that, that's saying, not Mr. <laughs> glass Half Fool that I, I'm used to?
1: No, no, no. I'm saying when we get out oh, of it, and I know we're mm. going to get out of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to see quite a, a you know, vast improvement in the RAND with global markets. So we're in a tough spot at the moment.
0: So where are you advising that your clients put their money?
1: Now, I'm, still, I'm still global. And, you know, it's, it's paid dividends, Alec. You know, the, the NASDAQ, um, you had Magda on last week. And we were chatting to Magda and it was a fascinating conversation. But I mean she she runs a fund called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. You know, and if you would have invested in that fund at the beginning of the year, you're up, you know, I think twenty, twenty five percent. If you would have invested in the Nasdaq, you're up actually there's a Satrix, Mike Brown's product, a Satrix um tracker fund which tracks the Nasdaq, you would be up over forty five percent since the beginning of the year. Now a lot of that is the rent. But still, um, we're living here. You know, we're playing in rants. And that's, that's compared with the local market, which is down maybe 14%, 15%. So if you, if you would have gone that route, you know, you're very well, well rewarded. And you would be with nice, best, and process. You know, two local stocks and that have done far, far outperformed uh, the market. But I hate to admit it. The ones that have really knocked the market out has been gold shares, both Anglo Gold and Goldfield. And you know, I ain't no gold bull. I'm not a, so, but uh, those have been the winners. You know, so you could have done, with the right selection of shares, you could have done incredibly well in this market.
0: Uh, well, our business uh, portfolio has also really shot the lights out. I think now we're, going, we're getting close to 40% return over the last five years. And since the, the crash, we've been going up. So it, But you're right. It depends on what stocks that you're in. Interesting, uh, re- referring to Magda last week, I got a note from Magnus Haystek to say, I won't go into the specifics of it, but he had a chunk of that uh, Oxford uh, Fund Oxford University Fund that she spoke about last week, a big chunk, lots of money that he could place with his, si- uh, his clients. He says it went in three days. So m- from Magnus' point of view, they got as much money as they wanted and Mag- Magnus said that he could have placed a heck of a lot more money into that. It just appears as though South Africans are desperate for something with a little bit of spice that's offshore.
1: Alec, it, it, it's just a diff, the quality of shares. Uh, we can't get the same quality here, you know, unless you want to play a turnaround, you want to play uh, a bounce in the market from very low levels, which is which is a very dangerous game, you know, to try and read or trade the market. But if you're looking for businesses that are sustainable, that are going to uh, go up over the next five years, and health is an incredibly strong area um, in, in all aspects of it, not only, and not only looking for a, a vaccine. You know, if you look at oncology, if you look at all diseases like that, particularly in cancer, it's increasing, Uh just with the population growth that. So, companies that are focused on oncology, uh, on 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 uh, finding genetic solutions for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, for businesses like that. So, even in the medical space, there are huge opportunities. In in uh, the, the, the mechanical side of it, what's come out of this uh, crisis as well has been, um, you know, where you get advice over telephone. So I think they call it tele, tele, telehealth or whatever Tele-medicine, it, is. So yes. a lot of it is. And we haven't even gone into, into technology where I still think the incumbents are going to dominate. So that's why, you know, that's what we're looking for.
0: Well, we are interactive. Uh, this is for the BizNews Premium community. Uh, we can't actually let the whole of the BizNews community come into this because then the questions are just never get answered. As you know, last week, David, I think only half the questions were answered. But just to let you know that there's a little um, box down the bottom which says questions uh, and in that box, you can actually write. In fact, let me ask my colleague, Stuart Lohman, to explain how the technology or the tech works. Stu, do you, do you <laughs> want to just take us through that in case I make some kind of a mistake?
2: Thanks, Alec. All good. Um, so far, obviously, Liz can hear us and see so us because I have no complaints. So the tech's <laughs> working very well, Alec. Um, just on the questions, is on the panel on the right hand side, there's a drop down menu questions. If you click on that, write your questions, and Alec and myself will see them, and we can go from there. That's, that's it. Alec, will go. If you can carry on your side.
0: Brilliant. Okay, David, uh, the big topics that we're going to be discussing today. First up, we're going to be talking about Pumalela, uh, which went into business rescue. We'll be talking to two members of the Racing Association. Last um, I, um, I knew, the Racing Association effectively owned about 30% of Pumalela. Uh, The two of them will be giving us more details on how the company got to where it was right now. But it is a company that's got lots of assets, very rich in assets. When it was suspended on Friday, market cap, 40 million rand. Now, if you think just, just the betting shops that it's got, if you want to buy the betting shop license, you'll pay probably 2 million rand a license. It's got 80 betting shop licenses. So just for starters, that's 160 without all of the other assets as well. What is your take on this? Is this just a managerial disaster? Is it the wrong structure? Is it COVID-19? No. It,
1: it, it has to be COVID-19. I, there might be structural problems. I don't know. You know, um, th- There could be issues like that. But Alec, what concerns me about this whole issue is that last week we saw Comair, we've seen Pumalela, we've seen Edcon, all of these. It's not these businesses' fault. It's not their fault that we're in the situation. This is government's decision to close the economy. And what concerns me is that they actually get to a position like this. I can understand SAA. I'm not going to challenge SAA because uh, that was already under pressure before this, uh, you know, before we stopped flying. But for other businesses, can you imagine how many others we're going to get like this? And that's what I can't work out is why there's no Response from government to say, we can't allow this to happen. We can't allow businesses such as, um, you know, such as the Pumalela to go, Pumalela, sorry, to, to go down and that. So I, I, I'm, I'm keen to hear why. I know you have followed it for a long time and there certainly is a place for them, um, in the market. We know how vibrant that side of the business is, especially the sports blessing, which is out of commission. <laughs> whose fault is it? It's not their fault.
0: We're also going to be talking uh, after 12.30 about the lockdown. I see Martin Kingston's already joined us nice and early. Nice to see you there, Martin. Uh, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be chatting more about that in, in some depth, and I'm sure that Martin's got lots of views on it. But just, David, your overview on lockdown. I had a, uh, I'm, had in fact, going to have an interview with the only living South African Nobel science winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor uh-huh. Michael Levitt, who's at Stanford University. I'm oh, really? talking, yeah, I'm talking yeah. to him tomorrow, Tuesday, yeah, uh, Tuesday afternoon. So we'll get his views on his former homeland, um, he, but he's very he's vociferously uh, strong. He says it's a huge mistake to have a lockdown. I'm sure there are people, other people in the business world who'd agree, but what's your take?
1: The same thing. You know, what lockdown was supposed to do? was to supposed to flatten the curve. In other words, make sure that we could delay it so that the hospitals could get in order and testing could get in order. That's all. You know, I don't think there was any vision that this was going to take months. And I don't think anybody envisions what the economic fallout uh, has been and what it's going to be. So my view is... Uh, um, I, I'm certainly on his side that, you know, I, I don't know what the correct balance is, you know, how we get back to it. But I certainly think moves have got to be made quite, uh, you know, quite dramatically in order to unlock this economy and to get us back working again. I think the effects are going to be disastrous if we keep going along this way. So I think globally, those are my views. But I understand some of the complications
0: We'll be getting more of that in a moment. But let's get on to the first of our two big focus areas today. And uh, welcome to Mike DeCock. Uh Mike, nice to have you on the program. I know that you're talking to us probably from the training center. You guys still able to train your horses?
3: Morning. Thanks, Alec. Yes. Look, um, you know, horses have got daily needs. They're athletes. They've got to be fed, cleaned, and watered every single day. The boxes have got to be cleaned out. Um, their welfare is of paramount importance to us, um, not only the human side, but, you know, just the horse side of things uh, to keep them going as they are our livelihood and lifeblood. When I say our, I'm talking myself as a trainer, jockeys and especially grooms.
0: How many people, uh, the numbers that have thrown around are 60,000 people are dependent on horse racing in South Africa for a livelihood. Is that, is there any way that you can support that?
3: Eric, I think you could probably, the economy of racing, there's probably even more people. If we just start with a horse born on the farm, say so he's a foal at foot with his mother. There's a groom that looks after him. There's a farrier that takes care of his feet. There's a vet that takes care of his uh, and, and mother's uh, needs and the stallion's needs. There's the farm that the horse grows up on that's got to be managed. There's the food that's got to be grown. Someone's got to drive the tractor. Someone's got to put fuel in the tractor. That horse then goes to a sale. There's a sales company, and all that goes with a sales company. That horse then gets sold. You still there, Ali?
0: Yeah, I'm here. Mm -hmm.
3: Okay. That horse then gets sold. Then it goes into training uh, to to a trainer like myself, who has a groom take care of it, vets, farriers. um, It's got to eat. So there's agriculture, the food that's produced, the feed companies, the transport companies getting the horse to the races. The horse then gets to the races. There's a racetrack that needs to be maintained. There's hospitality at the track there's betting so there's bookmakers there's betting shops hundreds of them there's um, advertising there's media there's print media there's TV media it goes on and on and on uh, and, and, and the amount of lives that that one single horse touches
0: incredible um, uh, so, you've, you've so
3: impacted. It, it's probably more more than over a hundred thousand in my opinion in terms of the if you have depends on how far you want to extend it you' even extended it to your Uber driver that drops you
0: at the race, you know? Yeah. Charles Savage is also on the board of the Racing Association with you, and as you can see, he's on screen there. Charles, we know you at Biz News for Easy Equities. Uh, We won't be talking easy today. We'll be talking racing, however. And I want to just ask you if if you really are that besotted about this this industry that on your Twitter page, as we can see on screen now, uh, you have a horse up, I hope. Uh, not a donkey, that's having a look at the at the track in front of it.
2: Yeah, that's a shot of Ryan Keyes. Uh, it's a very nice shot on a very average horse.
0: <laughs> well, uh, and how did you get into this industry? But I suppose more specifically, how did you get into the governance of this industry?
2: Yeah, look, I grew up with it. So my father raised horses and, Alec, uh, like, as you know, it sort of gets into your blood. And once it's in your blood, it stays. Uh, how did I get into the RA is you get voted on by the membership of horse racing. Uh, and so just about 18 months ago, Mike and I were both voted onto the RA. Um, and there were specific stakeholders in the industry that wanted uh, more assurance uh, and understanding of what was going on and specifically wanted Mike and I to give our inputs and views. Um, and that was 18 months ago. So that's how we got involved.
0: We've got quite a lot of questions that have come through and just to remind you that if you want to have your question answered, uh, please post it uh, in the little box given there. But just for both Charles and Mike, if you can take us through this, there's Pomalela's share price. It was suspended on Friday at 40, well, the equivalent of, I think it was 41 cents, equivalent of 40 million Rand in market cap compared Uh, with in the last 10 years. So it's not something that's just just happened. In the last 10 years, this share price has underperformed the Johannesburg Stock Exchange by 95%. And if you have a look at uh, the notice that was put out yesterday about business rescue, uh, it now says that the board of directors of of, uh, Pumalela are no longer in control of the company. The person in control of the company is a Mr. John Evans. Moving on to this, uh, and that's from Business Day this morning, Oppenheimers helped prevent horse racing industry collapse. Mike, I hope you don't mind I stole that picture or not, I borrowed the picture of Mary Slack and Jessica, her daughter, um, who are the, the, the people who've put in the $100 uh, to get presumably racing back onto its feet or at least to continue. Uh, just from your perspective, did this come as a surprise to you that, the, um, that Mary and Jessica uh, put the money in?
3: Absolutely not. Um, if if one knows Mary and Jessica and that family, um, for for Mary, first and foremost is is she has a she has a love for the game, a love for horses. They have massive breeding operations. We are, I can tell you now they don't make any money out of. But um, it's it's the people. Mary did not want to see unemployment. Um, she loves this industry, and has a you know has a great. Uh, she's a great South African. Good South African. And, uh, you know, her, her key thing was that the welfare of the animal and the, and the welfare of the workers, and I mean when I say workers, from groom up, um, is her first and foremost concern.
0: There's a question from Steve Reed for both you and Charles. Please could you ask Mike and Charles whether they believe any individual with strong ties to Marcus Joerster and or Pumolela executive and management team should be involved in the restructuring task team in any capacity?
3: That's for you, Charles.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, uh, it's, uh, look, I mean, the bottom line is that, you know, you you shared this, this, the graph of the share, Alec, and Pumalilla's demise hasn't happened overnight. Um, it's been an industry that has been under, under drip for some time. It's tried to sort of sidestep its racing's demise by adding more revenue streams. But then it's found itself in sort of a perfect storm, um, and that perfect storm is a lot of it is self-inflicted. Uh, I think some of the, the management decisions and the control which Yester had over the industry was a very negative impact, and it suffered severely from that. Um, but you know, you can't, to Steve's question, you can't eliminate everyone because they trusted in in Marcus Yester. I mean, if we did that, you know, pretty much every asset manager in this country would have to uh, resign too. There needs to be a sort of truth and reconciliation in, in racing. It needs to face its uh, its yeah, its past uh, and be honest about it, and then it needs to forge a new future with trusted individuals. Um, and it certainly has to think about uh giving every uh, giving people a second chance. Because if it doesn't, it's going to eliminate a huge part of a very small industry. You know, there it's not a big industry this anymore. And if you if you got rid of everyone that was attached to Yerster. In one shape or form, uh, there'd be very few people left. So, you know, as, as, uh, as I'm sure people want uh, him to be held account and, uh, and people to be held account, they will be held to account, but we, we've got to give people a second chance, is my view.
0: It was interesting uh, an interview that I did with Taste to Toy uh, last week, where it, it was a follow up on a webinar that he'd done. Uh, at his company, in the last little bit, like the last five or six minutes, he really, really took off at Marcus Euster and co. And said, but if these guys from Steinhoff have not been arrested yet, when are they going to be arrested? And he reminded us it's almost three years since the Steinhoff debacle started. So I guess at some point in time, the South African public uh, is might lose its its. Uh, its quest for revenge, but it's no time soon, and surely with the racing industry, it's even more, because he dominated the industry uh, for so many years as the leading owner, etc. There's a question here, not a question, more a comment from Jao de Mata, who says, I degre- disagree 100%. Pumalela and its demise has zero to do with COVID-19. COVID-19 is the symptom, not the cause. Thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's it, racing was heading in this direction, but COVID was the, you know, was the straw that broke the camel's back. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, you know, even if Pumalela was on safe ground pre-COVID, it wouldn't have survived this. I mean, if you just look at the global, globally at horse racing, I saw Irish racing is considering the same outcome in the, the equivalent of business rescue um, and the UK horse racing industry has been bailed out. So it's very convenient um to those who, who sort of wanted to see horse racing's demise to say that it's got nothing to do with COVID, COVID has impacted incredibly on on the industry. And, yes, horse racing was in a was in a decline and needed intervention and needs a new way of doing things. But you can't ignore the fact that COVID, that COVID was definitely the death knell. Uh, and even a safe Pumalela, a good, well-run horse racing industry, we'd be in a lot of trouble today.
0: Michael, from your perspective, uh, you do train, you've trained winners all over the world, uh, Dubai, um, South Africa, uh, obviously, um, the UK, the US. How important is South Africa in the racing world globally?
3: I think we rank uh, sort of in the top six or eight um, uh, in terms of, you know, at one stage we used to be a lot higher in terms of our ratio of expenditure and stakes, um, but that's obviously got worse and worse as the years have gone by. But, um, um, you know, our horses have performed in one group races all over the world. Alec, I've run, I've run in, raced in probably 10 or 11 jurisdictions in, in the world with um, South African horses running very well all over them, all over, you know, winning group ones in Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai. Um, So we're up there. It's a very important industry and it's an an industry that has massive potential for growth in terms of exports. Um, We've been held back the last eight to ten years due to African horse sickness, as you know, with exports. um, uh, A more more paranoia thing. I mean, it is deadly, but it is also, remember, not a contagious disease. So it would be akin to sort of not allowing anyone from a malaria country not to travel. Um, We've done a lot right but, again, you know, we haven't sold our, ourselves uh, well except up until now uh, into the international market in terms of what we do uh, in biosecurity, et cetera. So um, we have a big role to play in, in, in the world markets. We have, uh, especially in the east, I believe, uh, our horses are competitive, will be very, com- they're very competitive in terms of, of buying as well. I mean, if you see what, what you know, in Australia they're probably – at sales, average about three hundred and fifty or four hundred thousand dollars at their main sales, average price of the horses, where ours would be that in rands, three hundred fifty, mm-hmm. four hundred thousand rands. So you can see the value that we are. We're and, uh, but the problem we have we have not played on a level playing field, and we haven't been able to export properly for the last ten years. We've had to do it via a third country, Mauritius, which um, is not a great thing in terms of of the welfare of those.
0: Well, maybe all of this, they say that uh, you should never waste a good crisis. Perhaps those that make the decisions or make the rules will, will wake up now to the uh, potential of this industry. There, there are so many questions. I'm going to ask you guys, uh, we've only got five minutes left of this, uh, this block, uh, just some quick responses. Uh, will share manipulators at Pumalela be brought to book? That's from Charles Pretorius, not surprisingly. Uh, something controversial, Charles?
2: It's a job for the JSC. If anyone's done wrongdoing, the JSC will investigate it.
0: Mohammed Sheikh asks, what action, if any, will be taken against the previous directors of the Racing Association?
2: Uh, I'm not sure what he's referring to. I mean, uh, as director of the RA, we're unaware of uh, any wrongdoings by previous directors. Uh, So for us, I'm not really sure what he's referring to.
0: Do you think this is the but rock? We
2: will act if we do find something.
0: If you find something, yeah. uh, there definitely will be uh, sure. Okay. Do you think this is rock bottom for racing? Says Ross Hellinger?
2: There's no doubt. I mean, you know, this was this is as close as you'll ever get to never coming, you know, back. I mean, we've. And I and I don't think the racing industry fully understands that. Uh, Mike and I, because we're close to it, understand that well. You know, we were. We were pretty much days away from the end of racing in this country. So this is, you can't go lower than this because lower than this would be shut down. Um, and, you know, in that, I think this is a crisis that we can use to restructure and reform um, and build a trusted industry. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for horse racing to redefine its future. Um, and that's not going to be easy, but it is much easier uh, now than it would have been five years ago.
0: Michael, Mary Slack's uh, $100 It has to come with some strings attached.
3: I think Charles can, is better is better place. Uh, look, with Mary, there's no strings attached. I can tell you now, first and foremost, it's going to be survival. But, I mean, Charles will be a be better place to tell you how it can be utilised and, 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 and what expectation there is.
2: Yeah, I mean, Alec, the, the $100 round is really to make sure that the business rescue practitioner has got – the capital to ensure that horse racing can survive for another six months. And that's typically sufficient time for a business rescue practitioner to do a deal in business rescue uh, to see the business survive again. So, you know, there were some conditions. None of them are are, are draconian uh, and they're normal for a standard business rescue practice. Um, There's nothing uh, extraordinary uh, about them. And as Mike said, you know, Mary's, Mary's commitment really was to save jobs. And so when, you're in the, when, you, when you want to save jobs, your conditions are less draconian than uh, what they might have been if it was another capital provider.
0: Uh, final question uh, comes from Joe DeMata, who says, I never wanted to see horse racing's demise, but uh, the UK and Ireland are also victims of bookmakers plundering the sport. So I suppose there's lots of int- intricate uh, issues that are going to need to be addressed and, and focused. But Charles, I'd like to ask you a a question. Some months, perhaps years ago, you were crossing swords with the Yerster Group. Uh, I think it was at the time of the Western Cape racing being hived off. Did you get any insights then that you're going to be able to apply now that we are in a crisis uh, or this industry is in a crisis and it can now be resuscitated?
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing that we tried to stop back then was we wanted Gold Circle to stay together. And that was the KZN region in the Western Cape because we realized that they couldn't stand apart. And the bottom line is that that's that's born. That's born out now. Racing as an industry has to come together under a single banner. Uh, right now, there are three organizations in Pumalela, Killerwood uh, Racing and Gold Circle, and they have to come together. Uh, and importantly, in order for them to come together, there has to be a trusted council. Um, of people that are going to lead that that coming together. And horse racing has, is the most divided, untrusted industry I've ever, I've ever been involved in. I've, I mean, I've never seen an industry so divided and so untrusting of each other. And central to our turnaround is going to be to find a, a team that we can trust in, that brings all of those organizations together and races under a single banner. Failing that, we'll just fail to race a few years from now.
0: Robin Lowe says, not a question, just a thank you to Mike, Charles, the Racing Association Board, and the task team for everything that you are doing. And uh, Jason Dedekind asks, he says, this is not a scenario that is going to be completely sorted out in a short space of time, but from the task team's perspective, what is the number one identified action that you'll be focusing on? Perhaps it's a good way to, to close off. Mike?
3: We've got to get back racing. That's uh, it's very, very important. That's where it, that's where it all starts, Alec. And, uh, to get, get onto the race, get onto the track as soon as possible. And then we can get the, the economy of racing going again. Without racing, the horse is racing, then nothing's going to happen. That's, that's where it, that's where it starts. And from there, everything, you know, it's, it, it, the greater economy of, of racing is expanded.
0: Charles, you aren't asking. You've got to race ASAP. Pumalela uh, wasn't asking for a heck of a lot. Only 65 people on the race course. To conduct a whole meeting. Why is government so reluctant to allow
2: this? Yeah, I mean, she's Alec. You know, they won't let e commerce, and, you know, not, and racing is, <laughs> is a far cry from e commerce. And racing hasn't done itself any favors. It's a misunderstood sport. Um, and we, we have not communicated, engaged uh, government well in our past. And so they probably, many of them, probably don't even know we exist. Uh, sadly, so, you know, we just haven't we, we've we're we haven't we haven't helped ourselves at all. But as Mike said, if we don't get back to racing, um, then this industry is going to get smaller and smaller. And literally for every race that we every month that we don't race, I reckon we're going to get 10 to 15 percent smaller every month. And it's already a small industry. So we've got to get back to racing. And, you know, to that to that question, the, the thing we've got to do is once we get back to racing, the income streams will start. The economics of racing re- recover. And then we can do a deal in business rescue with the business rescue practitioner to pull the, the parts of the business um, out of out of business rescue. But until there's any ra- there's, ra- there's uh, any racing, there really there's no revenue, and uh, racing's demise will just get worse.
0: Charles Savage, Mark Decock, thanks for your contribution to Rational Radio this week. Dave Shapiro, hundred thousand people, Michael says uh, are uh, or jobs at. Risk here, you want to work that out a little bit more. You're probably talking uh, dependents. We know in South Africa, for every person who's got a job, there are quite a few dependents as well. It, it just seems like it's, it's, it's really all not necessary. 65 people, um, and, and perhaps you should start, the government should start trusting business to, to not uh, make everybody sick if, just because they come to work.
1: Well, that's, that's the problem. I don't think, and it's not unique to South Africa, I think globally, um, I don't think anybody had a grip or understanding of the supply chains or the multiplier effect or how businesses are so intricately uh, connected. Um, I don't think that was thought out. You know, we locking down business, etc. cetera? And, and, and as I said earlier on, the intention was for a very short time, not for as long as we've seen it now. And, and the big fear and the big discussion point at the moment is that uh, the longer this goes on, the more permanent those job losses will be. That's the big fear. So it's, it's a difficult situation. I'm, I, you know, I know where my my sentiments are. You know, I just think the sooner we get back to work, uh, the better, of course, with conditions, you know, with, with safety conditions or health conditions attached.
0: Well, as you can see on your screen there, it's uh, welcome to Martin Kingston. Who I'm glad you were with us earlier, Martin, because you could hear what one industry uh, is going through. And it doesn't appear as though it's a heck of a lot that's required to get this industry going again. Just give them uh, 60 f- the permission to carry on racing with 65 people on each race course. Yet 100,000 jobs do look to be uh, at, at at play here, at risk, were it not for Mary Slack uh, and her daughter coming in with 100 million rand to keep it going for a while. That might have been the end of the road for horse racing in South Africa. From where you sit it is a, a, a very responsible position, and, and I've heard on the webcast that Business for South Africa have done, you, you're pretty forthright uh, on what lockdown is doing to this country. What do, you, what do you say to people in an industry like horse racing, and we'll obviously move on to others as well.
4: Well, uh, good afternoon to you and your listeners. We've had that conversation with lots of sectors, lots of individual companies, both nationally and uh, uh, within regions. And it's not unique to horse racing. Uh, David was right. There are perhaps we need to go back a stage. The first thing was we needed to prepare the country uh, for the scourge of COVID-19. The reality is, although people are infected and people are dying, uh, it hasn't really begun. The storm has yet to really land on our shores. Uh, we know that uh, we're going to see a surge or a spike probably in August or September. That's many months away. And we needed to make sure that our first line of defense, our health, uh, defences were in place. And that's not just the individuals and the uh, uh, PPE, uh, but it's the hospitals, whether they're existing hospitals or field hospitals as well. And we've taken the five weeks that we've had to be able to uh, put those systems in place. But at the same time, we have been affecting very radically uh, economic activity. And our view as Business for South Africa is that within certain and I'll elaborate upon them, uh, we need to return the economy to full productivity as quickly as possible because we can ill afford to have a conversation about lives versus lives, people who have existing conditions who can't get access uh, to uh, health support, or lives versus livelihoods as more and more people become either unemployed or are unable to support themselves and their broader, broader families. So uh, we think that with the necessary and requisite health and safety protocols, uh, we should be returning people uh, to work, but we need to stop and pause for a moment. The reality is that effectively uh, dealing with the contagion uh, requires first and foremost to have an effective containment strategy. That's lockdown. But it has to be accompanied with uh, appropriate procedures in terms of screening, testing, tracking and t- testing, tracking and tracing. Because only with those procedures are we able to uh, establish with some level of uh, empirical data the spread of the infection and the velocity of the spread. Uh, Now, we don't have that information at the moment. I think there's been much written over the last few days about it. And we need to radically accelerate that. Because we don't have that information, it means that actually the lockdown uh, without that information can't be appropriately applied and we can't move through uh the levels from level 5 to level 4 the level we're at now and through to levels 3 and 2 and beyond and as you know we are ad- we are advocating a very accelerated transition to level 2 and beyond uh, because that's the only way we can return the economy as damaged as it was uh, to uh, uh to full productivity uh, as quickly as it can and we can uh, limit the impact on society at large I've put a the last point that I would yeah, make in Sure if I at the last point in that regard, if I may, Alec, is that uh, it's very easy for us to talk about health and safety protocols, but actually it depends upon the sector concern. The mining industry, for example, has extremely advanced protocols. They already had it in place uh, for the high levels of HIV that they had uh, within in situ, uh, for the fact that they had to care for communities that were within their own purview. Many of them have their own hospitals. So the mining sector is well prepared for that. There are many other sectors that are not prepared at all to be able to put in place very significant health and safety protocols. And the second aspect of that is that we need to, get to and from work. We need to make sure that transportation, particularly public transportation, which is a major vortex uh, for contagion, can be controlled. We haven't yet, as a society, got our mind around that. And the last point I want to make is this is a societal problem. When we see on the TV uh, the number of people that are out and about even if all they are doing is collecting their social grants and they are not social distancing, they are not wearing masks, they're observing none of the protocols, we know that we've got a problem that is theoretically out of control unless we can encourage responsible behavior on behalf of all citizens.
0: Yeah, well, um, you don't just have to watch on TV, just to look on the YouTube channels and the WhatsApp channels. and the, uh, I, had a, um, I had a video sent to me last week from a, a leading businessman in East London uh, of Lusikisiki. And it is as though it were month end all come at once, the the absolute crush of people. There. And he said it's exactly the same um, in most of the Eastern Cape towns where people are not really paying attention to it. But let's just have a look at these two um, pieces that I've got on uh, the, the screen right now, both from articles in the Business Times, uh, Sunday Times, Business Times, yesterday. The one is uh, from the Chief Executive of Business Leadership South Africa, uh, Busisiwe Mavuso, who ha- was very outspoken in what she said about the country having to go back to level two uh, at a rate of knots. And then Hilary Joffe's piece, which uh, was a similar call. Martin, on bus- and at Business for South Africa, Last I heard, your calculations there was that the economy could contract by enough this year that would take us at the current rate of economic growth, something like ten years to recover. Now well, let's hope there's gonna be lots of there's gonna be a different approach to the economy and restructuring, etc., but that's an enormous price to be paying for lockdown. What can you do to perhaps help to get things moving in the right direction?
4: Yeah so so Alec there's no doubt that we are going to be facing a very severe contraction in the course of 2020 and probably leading into 2021 uh I don't believe that there is a consensus view uh we share national treasury's concerns about the fact that the longer the lockdown the more protracted and the deeper uh, the contraction uh, effectively uh we're in a depression we're not in a recession we were already in a recession uh and uh Uh, we would know that uh, climbing out of uh, a depression is going to take us at least three to five years. We hope that that's the outer limit, not the inner limit of the time frame. Uh, By the way, we can't afford three to five years, let alone 10 years, as I think we would all accept, uh, with uh, associated ramifications in particular for unemployment, uh, for poverty and for inequality. All of those metrics go in the wrong direction. Uh, It's a, a horrendous scenario for South Africa. And therefore, we have to, in any event, post-COVID-19, reimagine what our uh, economy should look like on an inclusive, integrated basis, where it's sustainable and we have a radical uh, lift out of, uh, out of the depths to which we will undoubtedly descend. The lockdown aggravates that situation. On the one hand, it minimizes the risk from a healthcare care perspective, assuming everybody is observing the protocols you and I were just talking about, which they are not but it causes sustainable and potentially long-lasting damage uh, to the economy as currently configured. We may want a differently shaped uh, and constructed economy uh, coming out of COVID-19. The truth is that if we're only going to see the surge or the uh, spike in August or September, and that's on the premise that there's only one surge, we now know that it may be that there are surges that actually may be only by next year that we're in a beyond COVID stage, vaccines and we have treatments that can be rolled out uh, on an effective basis, uh, coupled with herd immunity. That's not going to be. We have to reconcile ourselves to the reality that we're looking at a long term problem. In other words, not several months, but potentially this year and beyond. And therefore, we need to accelerate out of it both during uh, the, uh, the contagion pandemic phase and beyond that. Now, my own view, and I think it's Business for South Africa's view, is that the government is completely aligned with us on this. There is no difference of opinion as to the need to return the economy to full productivity as quickly as possible, and therefore to transition through the levels as quickly as possible, but doing it in a responsible manner. In other words, we cannot open up the economy and exacerbate the risk. I think that's government's biggest single concern. The other concerns I believe we can... Address. But that concern needs to be dealt with head on. And it's not just a business issue. It's a societal issue, as I said. Lusiki Siki has nothing to do with business. It has everything to do with society at large. The challenges that we've got in terms of our public transportation system, uh, townships, and informal settlements, those are national issues that we need to address. If business can come to that party and play a role, then we need to do so. And indeed, we're in that discussion both as business and with government. But as I said, it's a broader societal issue.
0: Okay, I get that. Uh, there are, however, people like the only South African scientist to uh, who have won a Nobel Prize who says that the information we've been given is exaggerated. And he's gone, Professor Michael Levitt has gone very publicly on record to say that, and that the decisions that were being taken, not just here, but all over the world, were based on incorrect information. And increasingly, that information is now being shown that it is not as, uh, as, as ruthless a killer as initially anticipated. We get stuff coming out of Italy now to say that the numbers there have been heavily exaggerated by uh, comorbidity, etc., etc. What happens if in five years' time or even three years' time, the young people turn around and they say, hang on a minute, you guys completely screwed this up. Um, we don't like the system of government and we might do things very differently. Those are the questions that, that, that normal citizens have and are saying, hang on guys, are you actually looking at all the data on, an, on a real-time basis or are decisions being made on data which now is, is quite clearly to have shown to be exaggerated?
4: So, Alec, uh, you put your finger on uh, the biggest issue. None of us... Not even Nobel Prize winners, by the way, are experts on COVID-19. That's become absolutely apparent. We've got governments around the world, not just in South Africa, whether it's the U.S. or the U.K. or Europe or Asia, who are all trying to work out what an appropriate intervention strategy is. If anybody on this show watched Boris Johnson yesterday, I would say we're a long way ahead of the U.K. in terms of trying to get our minds around how best to unlock the economy. Uh, There's no solution, and clearly, Overreaction is a major risk that we all need to consider. That's a political decision. At the end of the day, politicians who've been elected by uh, the populace at large have to take these decisions. All we can do is provide appropriate input into that decision-making process, which is what we are trying to do, and then we need to abide by those decisions. I, for one, am extremely concerned that there may be an overreaction Uh, that we may be cutting off our nose to spite our face. As I said, we're going to get into a lives for lives. That's the comorbidity argument or a lives for livelihoods. We cannot afford to have that discussion. What we need to ensure is that we ratchet up all our defenses at the same time and we don't turn off the economic tap uh, at the expense of everything else. We do think it was necessary uh, to ensure that we had lines of defense in place. We now have those lines of defense in place. Are we where we need to be as a, as I said, of screening and testing and tracking and tracing? Absolutely not. Are we appropriately containing movement? Certainly not. And we need to revisit those, I think, on a, on a dynamic basis. I think there is no point in assuming that because we thought that an approach was correct three months ago or two months ago, that should be hardwired, which I think is the point you're making. We need to revisit that on an ongoing basis and we need to adjust it to circumstances and indeed, as you say, as more information becomes available, uh, we need to be flexible and dynamic in our response to that. My own assessment is that government is in fact listening to all of these inputs as are the rest of us who are involved in these discussions as society at large. I don't believe that there's any one person who's got the answer right now. I don't, unfortunately. But the responsibility is a heavy responsibility. When we look at national treasury uh, projections, which under a worst-case scenario, see seven more people, million more people more, being added to the lists of the unemployed, moving narrow unemployment to 50%, not youth unemployment, narrow unemployment to 50%, which means we're probably talking about youth unemployment in excess of 70%. Those are statistics as a country we obviously cannot live with. We've got to engage with the subject matter right now and take decisions accordingly based upon the best information available to us at the time
0: so where is the president why aren't we seeing him on television every night or even every week
4: Uh, well I think we we do see the president on television every day it's just that he doesn't address the nation every day so the strategy that has been adopted in South Africa is not where you know Boris Johnson uh, and by the way Boris Johnson doesn't do it on a daily basis Donald Trump uh, addresses the nation on a daily basis If you look in the UK, uh, there are a variety of ministers, uh, including the Minister for Health, who addresses the nation on a daily basis. That's exactly what is happening here. I'm actually... uh, ...that the President of South Africa needs to address the nation on a daily basis. He needs to be very visible. He is very visible. He is absolutely in the front line engaged in this with all stakeholders uh, on a daily basis. I don't think that we can expect him to do more. What is critical is that we have a higher level of visibility as to the direction of travel. And it's frustrating for all of us. It's frustrating for all of us because none of us know whether there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's fair to say that David said there is light at the end of the tunnel. We know there is. We just don't know when it's going to be there. We don't know how steep the gradient is to get to the end of the tunnel. We don't know how long it's going to take us. And we don't know how many people, frankly, are going to become sick and die and how damaged the economy is going to be over that period of time. So that uncertainty is, I think, Uh, bothering and frustrating all of us, but I don't believe the government is in a better position to be able to prophesy that uh, than you are, frankly, Alec, on this show. None of us have that solution to uh, what we do know is that it's going to be with us for the foreseeable future, both the contagion or the pandemic itself, the infection itself, and and the after effects for the foreseeable future.
0: That is for sure. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't be one trying to do any kind of prophecies on, on on this thing. The more I talk to people, the more I see exactly what you're saying, is that we really don't know what we don't even know yet. But just a, a, a final question before David uh, puts his all back in. What did you make of the actuaries from Panda? who maintain that 29 times more people will die as a result of the economic contraction than from COVID itself?
4: Yeah, so uh, we saw the PANDA work. Uh, We are actually uh, using SASA work, which is the South African Actuarial Society work, uh, which models many of the same outcomes. It doesn't have the same uh, outputs, by the way. I think we must be very careful that we don't rely upon a single study and draw conclusions accordingly. The point they're making is the lives, 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 livelihoods point, and we agree that there is a trade-off, effectively, between making sure that our focus is exclusively on COVID-19 and those who have existing conditions, just as uh, there is to be struck in the balance, a view that has to be formed on unemployment and abject poverty and access to basic provisions. I think that was the only point they were making, but I would not place reliance upon the figures. I don't believe we're in a numbers game right now. I think this is a highly nuanced conversation that we're having, not only as a country but as a world. Uh, but certainly, we need to take account of those uh, uh, those inputs in our evaluations.
0: Mr. Shapiro, do you have a final question for Mr. Kingston?
1: I'm not uh, not a question, but rather a, a thought. I suppose I'll put it in the the way of a question. I think the one thing that bothers me, and I'm reading a a Churchill book at the moment called The Vile and the Splendid, or The Splendid and the Vile, which is a a look at his life and conduct put together by diarists during the Blitz. And I think what comes across is how important leadership is, you know, how absolutely important he was to the spirit of the British people during that time. And I'm not comparing the times, what I'm merely – Looking at is is leadership, and I asked Martin on a global level, what has disturbed me throughout this entire period is that no, th- there there isn't one leader that has stood out. Perhaps Jay, uh, what's the name, Jacinda, down in uh, New Zealand, yes, and maybe even Australia maybe even Angela Merkel. But, I mean, Trump is completely absent, and America is completely absent from a a global point of view. We always relied on some nation to take global control of an issue like this, and it's it's imperative that we have some kind of global view on how to address not only uh, the, the pandemic itself, But also the economic lockdown. How are we going to get through this? It just seems to be, from my point of view, a total, total mess. And I'm just asking Martin how he feels from that side. And we're alone. You know, we're alone, South Africa. We're trying to do it alone. A small little country at the bottom here, with people, as Martin has described, you know, who don't adhere to uh, social conventions and and uh, you know, behaving the way we should in a situation like this. But I'm just interested in his perspectives on the global
4: side of it. Yeah. So so my sense is that, uh, David, you're absolutely right. What we have seen over the last few weeks has been parochial, myopic uh, sentiment that has crept in globally. Every single country has locked its borders and focused domestically. So you actually don't get a global picture. Uh, And you don't feel that the global leaders who have the resources and the capabilities can assist those who are less well equipped. So the biggest risk, I think, uh, at the moment uh, is uh, a fragmentation of global solidarity and where it's going to take root, most specifically, of course, is in Africa, because many other countries have got the financial and the human resources and systems to weather the storm. Africa, frankly, does not. South Africa is better place than most other countries on the continent. And if we don't address the economic, the healthcare, and the societal considerations, which ultimately become political considerations in the rest of the continent, they will visit themselves on South Africa's shores as well as in the rest of the world. We've seen almost no evidence at all. If you think that uh, President Ramaphosa in his part-time job, if I can put it that way, as AU chair, you know, has to deal with this, And he has raised a fraction of the money for the AU that we were able to raise for the Solidarity Fund in the time available. It puts these things into perspective. When we have global pledging conferences and the amount that is pledged is much better than nothing, but frankly, is a drop in the ocean relative to the amount of fiscal stimulus that is being discussed in Europe or the UK or Japan or China or the US. I believe that should give us some cause for reflection because when the pandemic has gone, you know, it's going to leave a very long shadow in the rest of the world and specifically and particularly in Africa. I think it's just not on the agenda. It needs to be just being caused societally. You know, we talk about two lenses. We talk about the economic lens and we talk about the healthcare lens. There's a societal lens that we need to think about very very quickly because the fabric of society is fraying that is exactly where leadership again david i would say has a role to play and not just leadership which is of a political nature not just leadership business but from civil society we need to see leaders emerge who are speaking of a common hymn sheet about not only how we're going to deal with the immediate challenge of covid 19 but how we're going to reconstruct the country thereafter as a consequence
0: Martin, final question for you. David, uh, don't go anywhere. You have got dozens of questions, literally, that they're going to keep you busy with um, on investment matters. Um, but Martin, a final question. When you're talking – and there's a big business audience listening to this, uh, people who have their own businesses. Uh, a friend of mine yesterday said he hadn't billed anything in the last two months. As a consequence, he and all his staff have literally not had any income for the last two months. What message can Business for South Africa and yourself as the, as the lead of the business part of Business for South Africa give to entrepreneurs or, or small business people?
4: Well, we, we are certainly of the view as Business for South Africa that the most exposed are indeed the entrepreneurs and the small business people, which is why we put out a call two weeks ago uh, for all SMMEs to be paid in full and on time. Uh, because they don't have the luxury of liquidity buffers that larger companies may have. I'd like to hope. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to the private sector. It applies to the public sector. They also need to pay their suppliers on time. Uh, we're going to have to gird our loins for the next few months. We know that. We're going to have to see to what extent we can uh, supplement the support that has been announced by the president, the 500 billion rand that was announced, because frankly, although it is absolutely critical, It's not adequate for our requirements over the next several months. Uh, And we need to see how business as a whole can rally together because there is no doubt that this is not going to be a short term problem that we're going to have. It's going to live with us for several months and certainly into 2021 and maybe 2022. Um, And therefore, uh, we're putting in place systems. I'd like to think some of the systems that are putting in place are working. They took some time to get up and running the TERS scheme, for example but it is now beginning to work. We're getting, beginning to unblock it, where uh, we can alleviate some of the immediate pressures on uh, your friend and his staff, which I think is a universal problem within South Africa.
0: Martin Kingston, thank you very much for coming on and, and uh, sharing your insights with us today. Uh, we really appreciate that, David. Uh, okay, well, what do you make of that? You've had two pretty... Heavy issues to deal with today, the first one with Pumalela where Mark de Cox is a hundred thousand people he reckons uh, pomelella yeah. said, said sixty thousand direct jobs um, that's a that 's a chunk of the economy and it just seems a little bit like the cigarette story where uh-huh. really if you 're selling cigarettes, is it really going to make that much of a pro is it that much of a problem um if you like we learnt in Prohibition with Al Capone, etc., in the 30s in, in the United States, if you ban something, uh, the criminals will just move in and, and clearly seem to be doing that there. So that's the Pumalela story. And then moving on to the other story, which is the lockdown issue. I know Martin, uh, I suppose, is in a, a bit of a tricky situation uh, given that he engages with government and he, he surely can't be too confrontational with them. But, yo, that is a, a challenge to try and get that turned around.
1: But he does. He does set out a program, and I think the program is just behaving responsibly. I know Boris Johnson have uh, and they've changed their logo now to stay alert, you know, not to to stay isolated. Or I don't know what it was before, but now stay alert. And and I wonder how we do that in a country like South Africa where. Um, You've got people who are living in in areas where they're in such close proximity. They haven't got the room that we have. They haven't got the houses. They haven't got the social uh, areas that we do have to to live our lives. And uh, you know, well, we're quite comfortable here. And I feel very very sorry for them. And but I still think we have to introduce the protocols. But he said something very important. The minds have always done it. You know, and and we as a country did it for for HIV. Uh, We went out and we tested. We went to businesses and we tested. And we continue to test in an effort to try and get on top of it. And you have to congratulate the country for being uh, well ahead in in that instance. So we've done it before. All we have to do is use the same kind of approach um, you know, to, to get to get to overcome this yes, which is meaning washing your hands, putting uh you know, putting masks on and behaving yourself properly and that. So hopefully there was something we can get out of. But I, I think the what's absolutely imperative is to is to actually get people back in in the offices and, you know, try and get the economy going and the effects, you know, the multiplier effects of that economy.
0: Mm. Okay, let's get to your questions uh, from your vast fan club, and it is vast, David. Uh, Starting off with uh, the first one here comes from Peter Salter, who wants to know about Sassel. Is Sassel a buy at these levels, Mr. Shapiro?
1: You know, it's such a difficult question. I mean, we've recovered so much there. They still have issues. You know they have balance sheet issues. They have the volatility of the oil price, which is up five percent one day, down ten percent the next day. We don't know where oil is going, um, and they've got to manage themselves through it. Do you buy it at these levels? You know, from my own personal point of view, uh, from a trading, you know, if if the if the markets keep going up. Which they seem to want to be doing, you're going to get settle going up as well. But I, I think you mustn't ignore the issues that are surrounding it. You know, do your homework on it. Just don't be blind and and buy it. Know what you're buying and know what what's it, or, you know what faces there. So, so if we, so, we go, uh, I'm in no man's yeah. land at the moment. <laughs> if I missed I missed it up. I must say, you know, I missed that massive, massive 300% gain. But um, look. It, it's, 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 uh, it comes back to the Pumalela situation as well. You know, when I, it was an interesting conversation to listen to Charles and to listen to Mike, particularly Charles, going to the background of it, saying, look, this was an industry in decline that needed to be re-looked at. And all that's happened is, is, is the pandemic has just taken it over the edge. And I think maybe Sassel as well as a business that had to re-look at it itself. It went into Lake Charles blind. You know, obviously things weren't uh, – there wasn't much control over it. It, it. it went out of control for them, and they found themselves under huge pressure, heavily indebted, not realizing that you're going to have the pressure on the oil price. You know, I don't think that formed part of their discussions when they looked at the projects. But um, So you've got to look back and say, okay, where do we go to from now? Can we swing ourselves out of this the moment. I think it's going to be a long process upwards. So that's why I'm staying out of it. But from a trading point of view, who knows? Just
0: looking at well, Pumalela on the, on the screen now, David, uh, you can see the volume at the bottom. And there were some big uh. volumes on the 30th of April at 80 cents. It's now 40 cents. You know, nearly two nearly one and three-quarter million shares. Not good, eh? Mm, huh? It's so, not
1: good in the sense of, of uh, whether someone was getting out. You know, who was getting out of this? I'm not looking at who got in. It. I'm saying who got out. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: look at that. There's a, there's a, it just suddenly, as the demise began, you could see that, that volume uh, traded on that side. And I guess if you were to uh, look at Sasol as well from a similar situation, it also gives you those kind of a pict- uh, that that kind of picture of a very high volume period, uh, trading period there. And I'm going to just take you to that graph on the Wall Street Journal as we talk, um, and you can see there, Dave, from what date was this? Around about the uh, 6th of March. Really? Look at those volumes <laughs> so compared the with the previous <laughs> volumes over going back years.
1: You see, you see what's happened is that's why Charles is smiling all the time because uh, people can't go to the horse races. They can't back on, on <laughs> sport. So they now started to back on the stock exchange. And those of them coming back in in, in, um, in big volumes and that, I think a huge number of people taking a punt. And, Alec, they were right. Do you know that? If they got it at those low levels, these these retail punters who came in actually got it right. And they're going to be able to brag about this for a long time. Uh, the question is, where do we go to from here? Can we continue that upward trend of that? And that's the debate. You know, that's, that's a difficult question. But at, at those very low levels, uh, they managed to, you know, call the bottom. So you can see that's all punting. 82 you million shares. I mean, he must have been making a fortune there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> These equity. Uh, there's a question here from Rick Lowe who says, how do the panel – View, well, how does David view companies in the 5G environment?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's a big, big area, and uh, there's so much attached to around you know around it. Um, 5G is going to be a game changer, and we're already in that. You know, we're already in that area. So the cloud, 5G. Um, security around 5G, uh, programming around 5G, uh, all of those companies are going to to benefit. Personally, we've got I've gone for Salesforce, which is a a programmer. You know, as you as we are doing now, you're storing your information on 5G in the cloud. Sorry, you're storing it in the cloud. And it's the companies who are going to be able to access that information, analyze it, artificial intelligence, that are all going to be the beneficiaries of, um, you know, of of 5G. 5G is nothing more than the fast transmission of data, you know, which makes what we're doing now a lot easier. So I think anything around that kind of, any, any tech around that area, I think is well worth looking at.
0: Salesforce, $125 a share. Um, mid-March, $175 a share today. Sure, David, and the technical analysts would tell you it's broken up above the <laughs> simple moving average. Uh, mm, that's a good one.
1: Uh, you, yeah, should, you should
0: have shared it with well, us, well, us earlier. <laughs>
1: What's very interesting is that we've been looking at uh, ESG. You know, it's a subject now which is going to grow in importance. Mm. In other words, behaving yourself. And it's not that you can find companies, specific companies, you know, that are, are in that kind of area. What happens is every company is going to be assessed on ESG. And we've been looking at that quite carefully and Salesforce is one that, that fits the bill that does come through, uh, you know, ticking the right boxes. So I think every time we look at a company, we don't want, you don't want those listeners, you know, challenging us on, 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 um, climate change and, uh, uh, governance issues, you know, as, as you had to, as poor old Charles had to handle on with Marcus Usta, you know, you don't want those questions anymore when you select a share. But Salesforce puts those, as does Accenture, as does uh, other companies called Splunk. I think there's another company called Splunk also in that kind of area.
0: Mark Benioff, I thought that was the man. 49,000 employees, as you can see there, and uh, a very sizable business already, uh, Salesforce, $158 billion in market cap. Uh, Mike DeToy wants to know from you, David, taking money offshore now but hedging against the RAND strengthening, how do you do that as a private investor?
1: I, I said that in the early part of uh, you know, of the program. I said if you are going to take off money, make sure you invest it. Because, uh, it's a difficult time. It's so difficult to read the rand at the moment. You know, I believe that as we get global markets or as we come out or when we come out and global markets pick up, the rand's going to improve quite dramatically. But you want to make sure that you're not exposed, you know, that you, cause, cause you could lose money on the rand, but you could make it up by, by going into the market. So that's the conundrum. You know, if you are going to go offshore, invest it. Otherwise you can wait here. And, you know, to see what happens.
0: Well, let's just it's hope. difficult. You're, t- you're having a bet yeah. if you're buying the rent, surely you're having a bet at the yeah. way that the government is managing this COVID-19 crisis. And if you don't think they're managing it at well, well, then that 18 and a quarter might be a bargain when you look into the future.
1: Mm. Uh, you know what's, what's been interesting? And, and you can never get into the mind of, of investors. It's always the challenge. But uh, our bonds are doing incredibly well. Why? Because uh, when you've got a world where they're negative interest rates or zero interest rates, uh, if you look at our 10-year bonds at 10, 11 percent, it it becomes attractive regardless of what you think the economy is going to be. And I think Martin painted uh, a very bleak picture of where we could be going. And yet the market tends to ignore that. So, as more money comes into our bond market, you know, the more, the stronger the RAND will be, the more inflows will come. And that will happen as things improve. So, the worst has been probably discounted in our market. <laughs> Look at process. Yeah.
0: Well, that's Benjamin Pretorius's question. Why is process so popular lately? Wow, it is, it's really mm-hmm. done well, hasn't it?
1: Well, it's, it's, tech orientated and have a look at what's happening in China. Um, they're increasing their stimulus efforts. Uh, they announced another package now. I haven't gone into the details, came out this morning, but Tencent, I think it's, it, it's perfectly placed for where we are, you know, for people who might be isolated. Um, at, in their homes, it, it just offers every element from from gaming to communication to payments to everything. You know, I think so. Don't ignore Alibaba. Do not ignore uh, uh, Tencent. So that's the underpin. But you have got a Bob Funday who's looking for other opportunities, all of which are going to benefit if he can get the. I know he's got classifieds going there, but if he can get food delivery, that's <laughs> that's going to be another big, big winner in an e-commerce world, you know, and I think people are getting pretty used to ordering it from home. So, so um, you know, I, I still think this has been a great investment and, and continues to be um, the, the substructure or the foundation of any local portfolio.
0: But isn't that interesting when you look at this chart as well? The blue one is Tencent, and that's telling you, Benjamin, why Process has been so popular. This is a RAND story, so you take Tencent's price, and then you take it in, in uh, the, the RAND depreciation, and you've got, uh, you've really literally got the, the reason for process. So thanks for that, David. Uh, there's a question here um, from Johan Urdendal who says So a company that was, has one leg in health and the other in IT should be well positioned.
1: Hmm. Point. <laughs> Rich, you know what? <laughs> Amazon.
0: Of course. Of course, Amazon did that big deal with Berkshire Hathaway.
1: Yeah, Berkshire, they they're doing it with J.P. Morgan, and they're getting their health, uh, you know, their healthcare um, product together, and they could be big. Have a look at that, and 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 do not underestimate uh, um, Amazon's power in going into the health industry as well. Jeff, uh, Jeff fascinating Bezos. story,
0: clever. I mean, what a What an absolute – well, Warren Buffett says it. He says uh, that Amazon has surpassed all of his expectations and he doesn't know how you beat it. Uh, And it's a little bit like he had that view on Google, if you remember, a few years ago. So there we go, Johan. You've got uh, Amazon, which, by the way, is the biggest share in our global portfolio uh, because it really just has done so incredibly well over the last five years. And you can see there, uh, we bought in around 300 and Uh, it was around 327 I think was the share price then uh, in our portfolio and it's now sitting at 2379, put on (laughs) $2000 since then, very nice Uh, let's get on to this sorry David
1: you know what's interesting about Amazon and about American companies is that um, they write off their investments in the quarter. They write it all through the income statement. So we saw it in this quarter with uh, uh, with Amazon. So don't be fooled by that. You know other businesses kind of capitalise their expenditure and put it into products and put it into intellectual property or into their entrance, uh into in, into goodwill. Not American companies. So that's been the beauty about Bezos. He, as he spends it, he writes it off. So what you see is what you get. You know, and it's, it's very important. Do not be fooled by quarterly or do not be put off by some of these quarterly statements.
0: Very important that, yeah. that uh, one, one does need to, if you're invested there, go and watch the quarterly results. Or sometimes they don't actually uh, videocast them, but you can at least listen to them. Uh, Paul Jeffrey says, so David won't be swapping his art for horses anytime soon. <laughs> uh, he wants to know, though, <laughs> is, is Telcom attractive at 19 Rand a share?
1: I don't know. I, it, it's you know they've tried very hard, but it's uh, it should be an industry that's doing incredibly well, uh, mainly because of its data transmission or sales of data. But they're doing that at very very small margins. And um, that's a horrible David. Look at that chart.
0: Uh, wow, that's a one-year
1: chart. It's come down quite. Quickly, uh, and I think a lot had to do with. Uh, uh, You know, management are really trying hard, but I think they've got so many legacy issues that they're carrying, particularly on the voice side of it. Um, We've got a new product here, which is a telcom phone, which is great, (laughs) which is my old landline made into a cell phone. You can walk around the whole house and you've got all the benefits of a cell phone. So they really are trying, but it's an industry which… you're competing in, in very low-margin products, and yet the investment that you have to make, your capital investment, is still very high. And we were talking about 5G. You know, when these businesses go into 5G, there you are. They have to lay out huge amounts of money. And what do we do? We don't want to pay for the product. We want to go sit in Starbucks and get it for free. So, so it's, it's, they've got to change their model, which um, I know AT&T and Verizon and all other businesses are trying to do by introducing streaming-type products, but um, I haven't got very strong views on this.
0: Well, had you bought Vodacom rather than mm. Telcom three years ago, yeah. you would have yeah. outperformed it massively, more than double, uh, and in fact, as th- that's the blue line, it's the tel- uh, Vodacom is the blue line, uh, if you have a look in the last year, it's been a massive outperformer mm. as well, so I don't know, David, uh, 19 rand a share. Perhaps some people would see it as attractive. Um, I guess what you're telling us is. I've
1: got go through Vodacom's numbers. They came out this morning. Yes. Uh, there, there are a few, you know, I've got to go through them in greater detail. I know that the results are a little misleading because in the last period, you know, they brought in the BE deal, so it tended to understate profits. So, therefore, these profits are a little, you know, the, the, the increase is a little overstated. But you need, I need to go through them in greater detail. But they seem to be on the face of it fairly decent. You know, so, they're coming through okay.
0: Well, remember, they've also had that massive uh, surge in volumes through lockdown. Oh. So, they're probably well positioned for the future and they're spending more money on it. And you're seeing the way that the uh, the, the bandwidth, we're all getting used to faster bandwidth now, and they're actually feeding us a little bit like, like addicts in a way. We're just being fed with faster bandwidth, and we, don't want to, we won't want it to be taken away. Dave, two last questions. Uh, has South Africa fallen off the fiscal cliff, uh, says Ivor Fletcher, and if so, how do we get out of it?
3: With great
1: difficulty, I think. I think it's going to be a hard, hard path upwards. I think Martin was great. You know, it was wonderful to listen to him and he laid out in very articulate terms, you know, where we are and what needs to be done and the path outwards. Uh, I think the only, what troubles me more than anything else is not the mining side. It's not getting back to business. It's the, it's the tourist side. You know, it's so important for us and I keep thinking, what becomes of a Cape Town? What becomes of a, a KZN? Uh, in December, if we don't get the to tourists, you know, how, do, how does a, a country, how does a city like that cope, which relies so heavily on 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 tourism, and and that includes our game parks and businesses like that, and you know the people very well, uh, Alec, and and, and that, that concerns me dramatically. You know, it's 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 always been one of the important points that we focused on when it's come to development plans in our future. And, uh, I would love, you know, I just hope that we, we get people coming back. Anecdotally, as, uh, things are happening, you saw Disney in, in Shanghai, people were there in droves, putting on masks, washing their hands, but, uh, they got the numbers back. And, and, uh, also in Europe, things are Airbnbs in, uh, you know, starting to pick up. And that's so uh hopefully we get, we get back to, uh, you know, we get back to travel and tourism.
0: Massive, Even if it's slow. Yeah, massive, massive challenges. And a business-first approach is the only thing I think that's going to get us out of all of this. And I'm, I'm not sure that we've got that mindset instilled yet in those who are making oh. the big decisions. And just to close off with, Anthony Rotenbach wants to know, is a wrapper fund the best way to invest offshore? <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a simple accountant. <laughs> I don't like complications. I pay the tax. <laughs> you know, that's uh, – I know there are a lot of benefits in that, but I find simplicity is – I've always been simple and I've taken a simple approach. But that's, that's me personally. You know, um, I like to be flexible. I don't like to be having to account to anybody else and phone them up and have to do trust accounts and all things like that. So uh, my own approach is, is – Pay the bloody tax you know, and just live simply. <laughs> so, but 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 again, you're gonna get. Speak to ten people, you're gonna get twenty opinions. You
0: know. <laughs> buy Amazon and don't worry yeah. about anything. Just buy the best quality companies you can get, and let mm. the, the, let the market let their brilliance um, mm. take care of the of the growth thereafter. I yeah. think it's a little bit like when. I remember when I started MoneyWeb in 1997. I had this conversation with someone the other day uh, that the internet at that stage was a land grab, Dave. You might remember it the dot com boom and everything was going only one way, and you had to spend yourself to riches. So the bigger your losses, the better the market liked your story. And at the end of that, because this was the only little business I didn't have, I just couldn't understand it and didn't buy into it. I remember our little company was of 12 listings on the stock market in the internet field in this local stock market it was the only one that was around a year later, uh, and it is you just let the let the growth take care of itself and that was the view we had just let survive and let the growth take care of itself, and I've got a feeling that South African equities are a bit like that at the moment. If you can invest in something that you can that can survive, that can see through COVID 19 the growth will take care of itself because the market will be shaken out. And you have a look at the on the screen there, um, just the, the final graph that I wanted uh, you to, to give us some thoughts on, Dave. Come here. Now, first of all, uh-huh. there's quite a lot of volume that was traded before it went into business rescue. Again, um, not casting any aspersions, but if you look at that bottom chart there on the volumes, those are big volumes for, a, for that stock. And secondly... This was a company that had been going or had been making profits for more than 70 years and COVID-19 has presumably wiped it out or has it?
1: I I, I don't think so. I think it will come back. But the fast I, I think we need a solution box you know the, the longer we drag this out, the more difficult it will be for them to come back but uh, I think they 've got the structure there you know they 've got the systems they 've got the aircraft it 's just a matter of getting through the next few months i I would hate to see the end of of uh, you know the end of Comair. i've followed them for many, many years, knew the novik family you know get on i mean his dad was there and uh, you know one of the one of, one of the of this business, and that I'd be really very, very sad if we see the end of this. SAA um, was in a different position, it was very, it was weak before we started. <laughs> um i know that they're trying to get it back up on its feet again but uh i i hope that we see both of them coming back i know that it's a very political and difficult point to discuss but i would i I, I would hate to see the end of saa i would hate to see the end of us having a choice you know to to go across i think otherwise air travel is just going to go through the roof it's going to be very difficult for us to travel overseas and hugely expensive